Welcome to the 62nd episode of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with a fellow 40-something-year-old gal living the best life with type 1 diabetes, Cynthia Selt. If you are new to the show, my name is Amber Kluwer, and I'm the host of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast and co-founder of the Diabetes Daily Grind blog. I had the pleasure of meeting Cynthia about five or so years ago at an event and knew we would be dear friends as we both struggled to find something we could eat at a luncheon. She mirrors my honesty and overall outlook on life and isn't scared to dive into her diabetes demons. In this episode, she shares very intimate elements of her T1D journey, including diagnosis, denial, diabolemia, and a high-risk geriatric pregnancy. Those those things really do exist, I guess. Um, But before I get started, as always, I have a few quick announcements, and thank you, as always, for your patience. Announcement number one, thank you, and please continue to love, like, and share all things on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm working diligently on growing my Instagram account, so I ask that you please check it out. Number two, the Real Life Diabetes Podcast is back on the road and headed to Arkansas. I'll be hosting a happy hour for all people, that means all of you, type ones, type twos, type two and a halfs, whatever you want to call yourself, for you and your loved ones, age 18 and up. Be sure to stay up to date on social media and don't forget, I'm happy to throw the podcast gear in my Subaru and hit the road if you would like for me to come to your neck of the woods. Details for the Arkansas happy hour will be on social media, so don't forget, check it out. Announcement number three, I'm always looking for creative ways to fund the podcast. So reach out if you're interested in sponsoring an episode or if you would like more information about advertising opportunities. Anytime you need to contact me, I can be reached at amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Number four, when we're talking about that kind of stuff, I'd really like for you to leave an iTunes review and stay up to date by signing up for the monthly newsletter. You can easily do that on the website. And last but not least, as I always say, don't forget to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Diabetes Daily Grind website before shopping. They always throw a little change my way each month, which help keep the episodes coming. Well, enough rambling. Let's get the show started. Hey, Cynthia, can you hear me? I can hear you great. Can you hear me? I can. Awesome. so I'm sitting, just for the listeners, excuse me, the listeners to know, I'm sitting in my sunroom, so you may hear some cars go by, the wind chimes or whatever, and where are, am I calling you right now, Cynthia? What, what town do you live in? Oh, Boise, Idaho, and it is a beautiful sunny day, and I just put my dog on the deck, so she might get a little upset, so if you hear a dog barking, it's just her <laughs> wanting to come and hang with Mama. I got rid of the baby for the afternoon, so she's like number one in the house right now, so she's like, <laughs> why are you putting me outside? <laughs> She's definitely taking advantage of the situation. Totally. So I want to start by saying, so to let our listeners know how we met each other, and I think it was, what, four or five years ago, we were at a summit hosted by a pharmaceutical company that shall not be named. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a hot topic right now. Um, But I remember, this is ridiculous, and I'm okay with it because I'm a girl and whatever, but you were sharply dressed, and I remember whenever we we had lunch, that you were being particular about what you were eating as I always am. And so I felt like I have a friend in this game, even though I don't know her. So didn't we not really even talk until we were laying out by the pool or how did we get? Yeah, that's really, that's really funny. And, um, 
that that's my memory is we met down at the pool at a break or after we were done for the day and we ordered a cocktail. <laughs> so that's, that's my budding experience. But um, that's funny you remember the food thing because you're right. And I was being really particular. But I think I was I was totally into the Bernstein low carb thing. Then right. And, right. Um, yeah. So yeah, food is always a way to bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I really appreciate that. So yeah, we um, got to know each other over the summit, and then we saw a each other again at, I can never say the name of this conference, the children, oh, the one in uh, Florida. CWD, yeah, Children with Diabetes, yeah. Yep. You, you were there, and who were you working for at the um, time? I think at that time I was with Diabetes Hands Foundation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to think that. Yeah, that, that's probably, that would have been who um, it was, yep. BHS, um, doing the community and social media manager role, which was uh, just an amazing opportunity. That was um, such an awesome chance to meet so many people living with diabetes and um, yeah. those that love them. So, yep. Yeah, that was um, an incredible experience, and only in that not only did I meet so many people, and you introduced me to some wonderful people, which was wonderful, you know, great, but, you know, there were so many kids there, and I yeah. had the opportunity to bond with a lot of parents. Just mm-hmm. by being down by the pool or having a cocktail or whatever. And yep. um, so, yeah, it's a wonderful experience, and I'll be sure to include that in the show notes because if you didn't don't know about it, it's I think they have two a year and one maybe in New Jersey and one in Florida, but it brings a lot of great people together. Yeah, and I think they move around a little bit, so I think actually there's one Atlanta. maybe coming up that they're doing it in Seattle. Okay, so on this side of the country a little bit, and so I'm not sure, but yeah, just an amazing opportunity. And it is so, like you mentioned, the parents, and it it must feel so good as a parent too to be able to meet some adults with it who have you know had yeah. had diabetes since childhood, and to see that you know we're okay, we're living well, and I mean that's one of my favorite things about being out by a pool or something, or in the summer when your devices are on on display, yeah. is yeah. it is like heartwarming when some little girl or some family member one runs up to you and says, oh, my gosh, you have diabetes. My, I wear one of those or my daughter just got that. And it's just so neat because, you know, when we were diagnosed, we probably didn't really yeah. have that opportunity to find anybody right. that looked like us. So just like all these families are finding their, their tribe, so to speak, kind of right. just in the past few years as adults, we've been able to connect now with, like, social media and the online yeah. community and all that stuff. So. Well, let's talk about this since we were talking about um, knowing. Anyway, what? Tell me about your diagnosis because yours is different, very different from mine. Yeah, and so mine's kind of an R-rated version, but um, you know, I'm going to tell it anyway, <laughs> but because it's real life, right? This is real life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was 19. I was a sophomore. I think it was my second weekend of my sophomore year at the University of Denver, and we it was a Friday night, and we had gone out with a bunch of girls, you know, on campus, um, fraternity row or whatever, and we had had some drinks. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm being totally honest here, this was not my first time that I'd consumed an alcoholic beverage, but for some reason I had just a sip or just a half a drink or something, and my friends were like, well, you are not right. And I, I don't I, – I was in and out of – you know, remembering things, but then what really happened is they took me back to the dorm. One of the gals had um, Epicac, which should make you vomit. So they thought, well, she's just nauseous or something. We'll give her this, and she should throw up. And nothing happened, nothing happened. And on the back of the bottle, it says if you have diabetes or if you have not, you know, thrown up the, the Epicac, call poison control, you know, within 30 minutes. And then it says specifically do not take if you have diabetes. And so they called poison control, and the first thing they said is, does she have diabetes? 
And I just remember them laying over me going, do you have diabetes? Do you have diabetes? And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> and so anyways, um, and you know what? Now that we're talking about this, I don't remember how we got to the emergency room. If the ambulance came or if somebody brought me. But anyways, this is the, the real kicker, which is the actual scary part, was in the ER, they took my blood sugar. It was some, you know, astronomical number. And the nurse said, oh, it's just because you girls have been out drinking too much. Just take her home, sleep it off, and maybe what? call services in the morning and to get your blood sugar checked again. And so that's what we did. And luckily, somebody came to my door in the morning, one of my, you know, girlfriends, and we went down to health services and my blood sugar. I think their thing down there read up to like 600. It didn't even register on the. Wow. I think I was like over 1,000. But it's just so scary. And you hear those stories so much, you know, about parents taking their kids in and then, oh, it's just a flu. Go home and get yeah. some rest. Or, you know, and it's just, it's terrifying to me now thinking back to what could have happened that night, going, you know, being advised to go home and sleep it off. <laughs> That's so, I mean, and, you know, here's my question to that, too, the stuff that you took, that medicine. Mm-hmm. I wonder why, I mean, everything says be careful if you have diabetes, but why specifically that drug, did you, do you, have you ever heard about what, you know, what that would do? No, I think what it is, is it's, um, you know, it's a poison that's used okay. to induce vomiting. And I think with, you know, something to do with diabetes, like it just doesn't metabolize properly, and so you won't vomit the poison out, which, you know, is the, I'm sure, I'm sure the girl who had it was probably doing it for some weight loss, you know, some college yeah, crazy, right. whatever thing that girls do and, you know, when they're this age in college, but, um, and she probably just had this great idea that, oh, she'll throw up and she'll throw up all the alcohol is what I'm sure she thought and she'll feel better. And it just did not work that way. So, yeah, so that was my diagnosis. And luckily I was diagnosed just on the road from the Barbara Davis Center Diabetes, uh, for diabetes, which, you know, is, you know, top-notch center in, in the country. And so I got great care from the start. And all my all my dorm friends came to learn how to, you know, do injections and take care of me. And, but although it did not last long, it only lasted three months, and my parents came came back and said, nope, you're coming home. So, <laughs> so that was the end of my sophomore year. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. okay, so when you were diagnosed, what, what type, what regimen did they put you on? Like what insulins and... Um, Humalog, it just came out, um, and so I was put on Humalog and MPH, mm. and so, you know, whatever you take in the morning designates, like, when you eat at night, and so my um, parents love them beyond the moon, but, you know, they still, it's hard for them, because that's what they were trained, you know, to take yeah. care of me, and so they still think, like, oh, it's 5 o'clock, you need to eat dinner, and it's so <laughs> different now, but, um, but like, yeah, Humalog, this is 1997, so Humalog just came out in um, the, my doctor, Dr. Satish Garg, he actually had worked on it, and so he was very excited that, you know, it just came out and it was going to make life easier. And um, yeah. yeah, so that that's that was my... Um, Could you give those two insulins together, or were they separate shots? Um, it was together. I rem- All that I remember is cloudy, clear, clear, cloudy. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> cloudy and clear. Yeah, so I think you, you would draw them up together if, you know, other than your lunch shot, you, you did that one separate. But, yeah, because I remember that's still ingrained in my brain is the cloudy, clear, clear, cloudy thing. So, Dude, well, I can say when I was diagnosed at age eight, um, you know, I was on regular and MPH, which I think is probably the only thing that was available. Mm-hmm. I didn't switch that until, okay, so that was 1984, I think. Uh, yeah, and I didn't switch to another insulin until 2001. And I remember being so pissed because I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to take more shots because I was only taking two shots a day before breakfast and before dinner, 
And here I was going, but I dropped like 20 pounds. Wow. That's Isn't that amazing. crazy? Uh, yeah, that college years, whatever. Um, okay, so now what do you – no, I'm not going to ask that, actually. It's not my business. Are you using any um, tech devices? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so you can ask me whatever. <laughs> I, have no, I have no secrets. You can, you can talk about what I do now, what I have tried. Yeah. But, um, What's so your tech resume devices, now? Yeah. Oh, what's my resume now? So right now I use Traceba as my basal insulin, and then I use Afreda as my um, short acting. And I'm, when I'm really not feeling lazy, I add in a, a little bit of Humalog because I have, I have um, pretty severe gastroparesis, and so my mm-hmm. digestion is really, 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 really slow. So Afreza is a really um, amazing fast-acting insulin um, that I oh, personally, yeah. I, I take after. It takes sometimes, you know, I, so tech devices you asked about, I do wear a CGM. Um, I wear the Dexcom, and so I just wait to see the rise on that, and that's when I take my Afreza, and then, you know, within 10 minutes that stuff starts working. So it works really quickly. So if I take that before meal, it doesn't match up at all, but sometimes right. I'll take, I'll, if I have a heavy protein meal, I'll maybe take some Humalog to catch that really delayed spike right. that I sometimes see like six, eight hours later, which you mentioned regular. And I don't know if you've, you know, like seen people, but it's kind of coming back into fashion because people are realizing after all these years of, you know, diabetes that GP really slows your digestion and regular has its place sometimes. So uh, isn't that crazy? Yeah, everything old becomes new again, right? <laughs> well, and let me ask you this, too, because I feel like I'm going to you, you are on a pump. You've been, you've been yeah. on a pump. Do you feel, and this is personal, I don't care about which pump yet or whatever, but do you feel like you now have a better management using Traceba and, and Afreza, you know, your combo now, or did you mm-hmm. find better management with, you know, a slow drip and one pump? Um, I've never had the success, personally, that I that I do now with diabetes. Um, okay. And I've tried. I was um, I was a potter for probably 9, 10, 11 years. Something like, and I loved my pod. And I actually, for my first two years on a Fred's, I stayed on my um, my pump. And I ran my basal through my pump and then um, just took all of my, you know, prospecting via Freza because Traceva wasn't around yet and I didn't want to go back to any of the, on any of the older basals. And so I stayed on my pump and I loved it. But, I think, you know, just a combination of scar tissue, just, yeah. it was really the, um, which I am sure we'll chat about in a little bit, but with the diabulimia causing such severe gastroparesis and stuff that right. I just couldn't match anything. And so a friend of me was like a total game changer. Like I, I can mm-hmm. see a spike happening and I dose and I'm back in range, which which is the big thing for me with a friend it's not even necessarily looking at an A1C because we all know that, you know, time and range yeah. is really the the big, you know, kind of indicator that calcs is still better throughout our day. Right. And it's really that. It just, it keeps you from getting, you know, really high, which especially with gastroparesis, it starts this, you know, this cyclical thing where the gastroparesis flares, your blood sugar's high, which causes the gastroparesis to exacerbate. Right. And it's just like a nightmare, and it can take a week or, you know, even over a week to just really get back to normal and, you know, then heaven forbid you eat something that causes it to flare again and you're back in that <laughs> cycle. So, so yeah, Yay. personally, this is, you know, and there are so many tools out there and different combinations that we all try and that we all use that we find success with. And for me, this is just something that I found success with. That yeah, in fact, I love that. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I love that because, you know, I think many of us are scared to try new things or mm-hmm. we don't challenge ourselves. And so hearing somebody else say, oh, here's why it's worked for me may encourage somebody, you know, to venture on. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I'm not doing this good. So yeah, and I really when I stumbled upon this, it's almost been four years now. I really was at my like diabetes end of my rope, like within, like even you know we talk about burnout and stuff. I was like burned out of the burnt out. Like I was, <laughs> I was ready to just be like capital D O N E done. And so a friend of mine just said, you know, give it a shot. <laughs> Right. Um, quote to air quotes, give it a shot. But I'm like, fine, I'll try it. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, oh, this isn't going to work. And within like a week, I just got found. And it, it was also, because we'll talk about it, I'm sure we'll touch on the eating disorder stuff in a little bit. But there was always this game I played with insulin where should I do one unit or should I, you know, you know, kind of cheat myself in just half or maybe I don't need any. And right. so for me, a Fresa was a mental thing too because there's not these huge dosing yeah. options. Right, which is a weird thing to wrap your brain around, but once you get a hang of it, it becomes pretty simplistic. But for me, it was either, you know, you pop in this cartridge and you just inhale, and that's yeah. it. I either did blue or green. There was no, like, one unit, two unit, or 0.65 basil, yeah. 0.55 basil. Right. So that, for me, was a big a big mental thing. You know, my blood sugar was high, I would dose. It was, to me, like, I had a headache, I would take, you know, a, a Tylenol or whatever. So Right. You know, I have to say, because I was on uh, social media, as always, and yesterday there was a post, and I can't remember which support group, but this young lady, I assume young lady, was commenting about the fact that, you know, she has a new job, her anxiety is really high, they don't know she has diabetes, and, you know, and she's like, I haven't even told my doctors that I am, my anxiety is so high about diabetes, and I, mm -hmm. I mean, of course, all the people just started chiming in, and it made me think, you know, this is, and I even put, this is, diabetes is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. There's no quitting. So, of course, you're always going to be like you were touching on, one unit, half a unit, what am I going to do before or after, mm -hmm. you know. I think naturally for a lot of this, I'm one of those people, I suffer from anxiety because I always have that going on in my head. Mm -hmm. And it affects yes. every part of your life. I mean, yep. even when I you think, don't think it does. <laughs> I think it's probably almost safe to say that, you know, anybody with diabetes or, or any other chronic illness that, you know, is on the back of your mind or forefront of your brain 24 hours a day, you oh. can't not have anxiety. I mean, yeah. just the simplest little task is you have to be prepared. <laughs> you know, be it's prepared, like disaster, yeah. disaster preparedness 24-7. You can't, you can't <laughs> just go for a walk because what if, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. seriously, what if you end up talking to the neighbor for an extra half hour and you go, <laughs> you know, just all these little things that, yeah, it is. I mean, there's... Um, and, and same with the, the eating disorder thing, too. My husband always joked, like, mine was a little bit, you know, of the extreme eating disorder side. But he said, you know, with somebody with diabetes, even if you don't have a, necessarily an eating disorder, you can't probably not have disordered eating because we all yeah. have to think about that, too. You yeah. Know, like, um, yeah, it's crazy. Well, let's, let's touch on that because, so you, you know, you, you have an eating disorder. Do you have it? Is it like, is it something that you will always have? I know oh, it's no. ridiculous, but yeah. So and there's really there's two schools that I've got on it. You know, there's there's um, scholars out there on eating disorder that do say you can be like you know recovered, cured, said and done, never look back. Right. And then I think the more popular notion is you know you're always in recovery. It's kind of a moving thing, right. and right. you know, um, it's kind of like anybody with one of those life things. You just have to, you, you know you wake up and you kind of deal with every single day. But um, in my mind right now, it's all but said and done um, and I think a lot of that has to do with you know just having a baby and yeah. that I look at her now and I think there's no way I can ever feel that rotten again 
to be able yeah. to take care of her. You know, she she deserves a mom who's happy and healthy and active and can chase after her and do all of those things. And so I don't, right now my brain can nowhere go near that space. Yeah. But there's probably no guarantee that it won't enter that mindset at some point. But, um, well, and let me yeah. ask you, we, with the eating disorders, because I know I witnessed a lot of that um, in high school and college. Thankfully, I, I was not that person. But um, were you... Did you have the eating disorder prior to diabetes? Yeah, so it just kind of, it shifted. So I was a gymnast since from very early on, like maybe two, three years old. And so you're always like weighed and measured and you're and just kind of by default, anybody prancing around in that little of clothing <laughs> on any activity, you know, whether it's volleyball and volleyball shorts or, you know, any of that stuff, you're kind of always body conscious. And um, so, you know, I'd, I'd exercise a lot or maybe, you know, not, eat as much as I probably should or all of those things that, um, you know, come along with different eating disorders. And then mm-hmm. I was kind of over that, but, and then it wasn't, but the next year that diabetes came along and it took me maybe three weeks of, you know, being diagnosed and gaining all of that weight back, which, mm-hmm. you know, initially a diagnosis, we've probably, most of us lose some weight and then you gain this weight back, but it's really just your cells rehydrating and your body mm-hmm. getting the fluids back that it's been depleted of and, you know, all of that stuff coming back into balance and your electrolytes and, you know, your body just really getting healthy again. But the thing was, especially then, nobody told me that. And so I was right. a 19-year-old freshman who wore whatever size jeans and all that I cared about <laughs> is, you know, the doctor's like, yes, A1C is going down. And I'm like, no, gene size is going up. And so I wasn't, you know, a complete idiot and I, I thought well if this stuff's making me gain weight if I don't take it I'll lose weight I had no idea that it was a thing you know we couldn't hop mm-hmm. on the internet you know a couple decades ago and find answers to anything and I remember going to the library and trying to find something here or there and um, you know I couldn't find anything so I just thought I had found this magic thing and so and especially with diabulimia the more calories you you know the more carbohydrate you intake the more you know the higher blood sugar gets in the in the increase the rate that this weight is going to come off. You know, it's completely unhealthy and, you know, just it's devastating to your body. But, you know, it's really upwards of 40% of those diagnosed with type 1 will engage in some sort of diabolemia behavior, whether it's for, you know, the long haul or just, you know, to drop some pounds here and there. But it's really, really, really common. It's scary common. It's not just women. It's men too. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this because, you know, and, at any point, and I know when you're in that state, and and I say that with like alcoholism or other things like that, like you're not thinking about the consequences long term. Did that ever, you know, did you ever put the two together? Like this could cause diabetes complications. Yeah. Oh, I think I think that was probably always something I thought <laughs> about, like almost first and foremost was, oh my gosh, you. And it's so, and it almost seems silly. Like you know what you're doing, you know how badly you're hurting yourself, and. You know how bad you're hurting all the people around you by not being able to, you know, be active and do stuff with them. But I knew I was hurting myself. I knew I was hurting my body. I understood all that stuff, but you just don't care. And Mm -hmm. I think, and I think about it a lot, you know, sometimes people just get so burnt out with diabetes even, and Mm -hmm. you just kind of stop quote unquote caring. And you, what happens, you know, you wake up in the morning and you think, okay, today, today's my day. I'm going to do it today. You know, I'm starting fresh or it's Monday and I can do this. And Something sets you off or, you know, skews you off your path a little bit and you just get sucked back into the trap. And so that's what it was. I knew what I was doing. I mean, this went on for, you know, almost two decades, you know, and I'd I'd kind of 
feel like I was recovering a little bit and then fall back into the trap. And, um, mm. and so, yeah, I think you always know. And so I'm in, you know, different groups where I read, you know, other people who are engaging in these behaviors and stuff. And I think we all kind of feel this and we know what we're doing. It's just, you can't stop. Um, right. And I, you know, that's like probably anything. Ever, excuse me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I want to understand it a little bit better in that, were you ever going to be thin enough? Was it like a size or the way, you know what I mean? Like, what was your goal? Or was yeah, there one? No, yeah. that's a really, that's a really good question. There was no goal. Um, yeah, and I don't even know if it was about like a size or a weight or, um, and I think what would happen too is, you know, I'd get to a certain point where I felt really great, but then you start thinking, okay, I better start taking care of myself. And then so oh. you start again and then you put those pounds back on. And, right. you know, those, it's all that water weight and stuff that's probably going to, you know, it's going to go away. Your body is going to become, you know, balanced again. But you just can't get over that month or two months of, you know, that. And so you, then you fall back into the trap. And so right. I think it was more of like this dance of like up, down, up, down, up, down, rather than, you know, maybe like different types of eating disorder where there is that just, you know, never thin enough. And you see yeah. these girls getting up to like 70 pounds, 60 pounds. And, yeah. You know, they'll say, I, I just still feel fat when I looked in the mirror. And I, I don't think it was necessarily that. It's just I was scared to get, maybe this is it, I was scared to gain weight. There wasn't necessarily a target goal to lose. I just didn't want to gain anymore. Or, right. Yeah, no, that's a, really good, that's a really good question. Okay, so two decades, you said, of living with this disease, um, as in diabolemia. Do you, so you do have... A complication is—is is there more than one? And can you tell me a little bit about, more about it? Um, yeah. So I—I I know I have um, gastroparesis pretty severely, and then I did have really—I mean, I have neuropathy um, somewhat, and I had it really, really, really severely when I was really um, engaging in those behavior, like the diabetes right. stuff, a lot, and that kind of receded. It's, you know, I'll still, if my blood sugars creep up, like if I get over a certain number or whatever, I can feel it in my legs a lot or my legs get restless at night and that mm. kind of thing. And then also I had um, retinopathy, but ever since my, um, you know, well, they look at A1C, but I say time and range has improved. <laughs> my, I have no diagnosis of retinopathy on my eye chart anymore. So um, that was pretty, that was pretty exciting for me. And, um, but other than that, I just feel like I'm so fortunate that, you know, worse things didn't happen because a lot of people will, you know, engage in that diabetes. Well, and even if you don't, I mean, there's no guarantee. You can have diabetes for a year with optimal, you know, A1C targets and time and range and still get a complication. Or you yeah. can, you yeah. know, be completely out of range for 30 years and have no complications. So it's really just a kind of shit show crap shoot, for lack of better words. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but. exactly what it is. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah that's, the, the fear with some of them, too, because I, I had retinopathy. Um, and, like, uh, we actually, Ryan was with me when I got the results. And I remember just thinking, this is it. Uh-huh. Everything, I mean, I'm, I'm going blind. This is it. Yep. And then yep. I did more research talking to my eye doctor, and I went to a specialist, and that I realized that my blood pressure was high. I was really stressed out at this period of my life. So I really focused on meditation and, you know, de-stressing my life. And I started taking blood pressure medication. And that removed the hemorrhages. And so it, to me, it wasn't even that it was diabetes. It was just 
you know, you always hear about retinopathy. So I, I have to say, and I know this is not fair, but if you are ever, if they ever say you have retinopathy, ask other people's opinion on other things. Like, I don't know if there's a specific thing that says it's just diabetes related. And I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. I hadn't thought about it differently. So, well, well and that, it's gone. Yeah. No, and that's so true with so many things. I mean, I joke all the time. Like, we could go into the ER, like, having, you know, cut our head open on a nail in the attic, and they'll say, find out you have type 1 and, or diabetes, and they're like, oh, well, this is from diabetes. It's like, no, I hit my head, you know, <laughs> on a nail in the attic. It has nothing to do with diabetes. And, you know, I, you hear a lot of stories about that, too. I, I remember going in, I was my appendix was bursting, and they had me, they admitted me for DKA for and didn't even – they weren't listening. I'm like, no, it's really, it's not that. Like, my blood sugar's not even that high. There's no way. And, yeah, just crazy stories like that. You really have, that's a whole, that's a whole other show about, you know, advocating for your own best health. Holy smokes. <laughs> I think I'll tell you one funny story that happened this week um, about just, like, the weirdness of those scenarios. I'm a part of a, a research institute, so if there are trials coming through, I get contacted. And I've done a couple for diabetes. But I got a text message yesterday that said there was one available for eczema, which I had. And so I said, I'd be happy to chat with you. So they called me yesterday, and the woman right off the bat says, well, I just want to make sh- I have to ask you something. And I said, sure. She goes, do you still have type 1 diabetes? <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you found a cure for it, and this is a fun trial, I don't know what you're talking about. And then she- I laughed about it, and she said, well, that's one of the, we, uh, the trial won't involve, can't involve anybody with an autoimmune deficiency disease. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, <laughs> I, it was I know. hilarious. I'm like, you're in the yeah, research field. Yeah, and sometimes you really have to take a deep breath, right? Because I don't, I really believe nobody's like malintentioned or sure. sometimes you're just like, you have to just grit your teeth or like, you know, you're in the hospital or something and a nurse says, oh, you have type 1, you take insulin. <laughs> and you're just like, oh. yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's crazy. But, um, but then I think, you know, before I was diagnosed, I remember I was, I worked in a bar, I was serving and, you know, people that would ask for specifically like Diet Coke or regular Coke and I didn't give two thoughts about it. Right. And there was a time when I thought, maybe this is why I got diabetes, because I probably served somebody <laughs> regular Coke when you just, you know, the things. And then I think about, too, all the all the diseases and different situations in people's lives that, you know, we don't know about. And yeah. until something comes, presents itself into your life, you just don't become necessarily as engaged in it. So, yeah, it is hard, though. And, yeah, you have to take those comments with such a grain of salt and yeah. compassion and just, but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's funny. You still have to say what you're like, no. And I really, like, I, if I had a meme or something, it would be, like, scratching my head and, like, yeah. what in these hell? You say, uh, no, actually, I took some cinnamon last week and I'm fine now. <laughs> that I boiled some fun. okra, right? <laughs> Celery water. I mean, I think there's a couple of cures right now. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, because I usually touch on, say, you, you're married. How long have you been married? Um, one, two, three, four, five, going on six years, I guess. Yeah. We've lived together. We, we did everything backwards pretty much, but that's okay. Right. We've, we lived together for what, oh my gosh, like 15 years now and got married six years ago. Yeah. Will you share how you guys met? Like that story is so freaking cute. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if it's cute. He probably says annoying, but no, we've known each other since I think the seventh and eighth grade. He's one year older. So we went to middle school together. His sister was my best friend. And then, 
he went off to the Air Force, and we used to write, write letters back and forth. And then our, our first date, we hopped on the train in a little town in Minnesota called Staples, and we took the train across the country to Portland and somehow ended up in Hawaii and uh, never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> that was our first date. It tuna sandwiches in the, in the sandwich, the lunch car on the Amtrak. It was great. So, <laughs> yeah, so he's so stuck he, by my side ever since. Well, and so he knew you before diabetes and, yep. so, and dating, you, you did have it. Um, yeah. Or I guess, yeah. yeah. So any... Any comments about having – is there anything that he does that is good or bad about um, – Yeah, he's probably about as an amazing of a support that you could possibly ask for in a person. I mean, he is just – he's patient when, you know, he needs to be, and he right. he, he wears the watch. He helps me with – and for me, you know, that's a total personal thing is whether you want to share your Dexcom number. Right. Like but for me, it's really helpful because especially not to with the baby, like – you know, I'll be just doing stuff, and he'll be like, he'll be like, "Mama, you're getting low," or you know, and so that, you know, it can be annoying sometimes. But, but um, sometimes I need that because I'm a space cadet, and I'll just be doing 15 <laughs> things at once, and so it's helpful. But no, he's such a great support, and um, I think for him, yeah. So diabetes has kind of always been the norm for him, knowing me with it. But yeah. I think the big change was going from you know the diabetes stuff to now this healthy, happy. Um, woman who can sit down with him and eat a dinner without worry, worrying um, if the salad came to the table with three extra croutons or something, you know. And right. So he talks about that a lot, about if people ask him about what it's like, you know, to be a spouse with somebody with diabetes, and he'll talk more about the eating disorder part that, you know, it's just so much, you know, more less stress now and nobody's holding their breath when, you know, we're out to dinner right. or what to so eat what, and stuff like that. So how did it come to a head? What happened? Um... Honestly, I think it might have been like, I don't know, I'll call it Meltdown Monday or something. I don't know. It was a huge, I think I said shit show once. I can't really say that again. <laughs> but, yeah, something happened, and he just, I think he finally was just like enough is enough. And um, this was uh, several years ago now, and he, I think he, um, you know, said I, he decided he needed support too. He couldn't take this anymore, you know, dealing right. with the stress and the burden of it all. And, you know, it was, I was, you know, in the hospital over and over again with DKA. And so, you know, he talked with my parents and his parents. And um, it was kind of like, it was kind of basically one of those, you know, things you see on a TV show series where they have, like, the intervention or anything. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of like that. And um, I didn't, we looked at a bunch of inpatient clinics, and I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't go that route. I um, got some treatment just here locally. Just, you know, I'd go several days a week and, yeah. um kind of all, you know, and then we did some together, and so just a lot of that, but really, it just, and a lot of it, too, had to do with, you know, then I ended up, I found out I was pregnant, and so then even honing in, I was, I was doing really well, but even honing it even more, and I, the, the pregnancy thing really helped me, too, because, you know, your body completely changes, and so now, for me, it's like, I'm just very accepting of it is what it is, you know, and this body was able to do something amazing, finally, and, um, I need to be good to it, and um, you know well, that's you know, only. Well, and I gotta say, I was so excited because we had talked about both being diagnosed uh, or having diabetes for you know a pretty long period of time, and talking about complications. And you know, I I don't have children, and it was told at a very young age why well, I, I shouldn't, um, which is okay. But you know, I remember seeing on Facebook you posted something. It might have been your baby bump or something. I was just like, oh my god, this is awesome, <laughs> you know. And so let's talk about. Um, yeah, the pregnancy, how did all that go? Um, it was, it was 
in a nutshell, amazing, but a complete, um, it was complete surprise. So we had tried um, several times, probably 10 years ago or in my earlier 30s, and um, I'd lost several babies, several miscarriages. And so, you know, and I think sometimes, I think we chatted about this too earlier, but, um, you know, I was just, you know, with diabetes, you're just so medically minded to me. I just thought, well, my body just couldn't handle it. And so that's yeah. just the way it was. And um, and so we just never really thought about it much again. And we were both just super busy with our work and really engaged in that. And all of a sudden I was at a conference or something and I just, I couldn't, something was a little snug and my shirt went through up and I was like, what is going on? And, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it was actually the kind of the dog that told us because she wouldn't leave my side and she was just acting funny. And so I just randomly had a old like test in the drawer and there, there it was. And yeah, so it was so completely a huge surprise to us. And, you know, I was over 40 and so that, that's another like, so geriatric and type one plus history of, you know, <laughs> baby loss is like, they basically had me in this little bubble, but no, it was good. And the, the first four months were pretty, pretty touch and go. And I just, kept thinking it was a repeat of what had happened before and yeah. so I was on bed rest and so that kind of that part was you know a little nerve-wracking and it wasn't until like you mentioned posting a picture I think I was like 30 weeks when I finally was like okay, I should tell some people <laughs> <laughs> and like I didn't hardly tell like close friends or anything and um, I just I didn't really want to believe it yet until I knew it was really going to happen Right, and then sure enough, I posted that picture at like thirty weeks or something, and I ended up in the hospital the next week, and she was coming. So <laughs> like, I knew it, I knew I was gonna jinx it if I said anything. But she came really early. She was super tiny, three pounds, but super healthy, and everything's great. Um, and yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. She's so much fun, and yeah, she just turned a year already. It goes so fast. But and as far as like complications and stuff, she was um, well. She's called an interuterine growth, an IUGR baby so they just they're less than 10 percent of where they should be at a certain time growing you know in the uterus and um and that just that's not necessarily a complication of diabetes but it was because I was having a um failing placenta and that can be tied to diabetes so I knew I knew around week 28 that she wasn't growing anymore she hadn't gained an ounce from week like 28 to 30 and so we knew she was coming um my placenta was failing which is you know like I said um diabetes can contribute to that but um, so a little bit of a little bit of scary stuff, but she was just so healthy that you know the whole time in the NICU and stuff, it wasn't necessarily like you know scary, scary, but just right. I was happy to have her home. But I, she was really strong and healthy and stuff. So um, yeah, and I had a little bit. Oh, I was gonna say, and then, and then you know preeclampsia is always a big thing with diabetes and pregnancy, and I didn't have much of that until after I delivered, and then. Um, my blood pressure was like 200 over something and that called for a little bit of immediate action. But that was the only real, real scary time. So no, it, everything went pretty well. Well, let me ask you with the placenta failing being a, like I've never heard that obviously because I don't have children, but what, what do they say why that that's the case? Like diabetes, how that's related? Um, I've done quite a bit of reading on it and I should, I should probably know. No, I don't think there is necessarily a rationale for why it necessarily happens, but they just see it a lot in people with right. diabetes. Oh, and, right. and so, you know, the immediate, like, course of action is get blood sugars under control and all of these things, but all of those things were in place. I mean, I had great time with right. my, my A1C was, like, spot on to what it should be and all, all of those good things. I was eating healthy. Um, so there's a lot of contributing factors, but I don't think, like, they can't, you know, if I were to... Pinpoint. Heaven forbid, have it like another baby or something. They can't say whether or whether or not it would happen or not happen again. So, isn't that so crazy? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. 
and and it's it was it's kind of a scary thing because they know it's failing, you know it's failing, but it's like um it's like a degradation, like a slow. So they try and keep the baby in there as long as possible while watching your placenta fail. So you see it on camera all day long. Like, you know, it's like getting worse and you just, you know, (laughs) as the mama, you're like, just take her out and make her better, you know? And they just, they try and leave the baby in there for as much growth time as possible. Um, Especially they try to get them to 34 weeks because, you know, all of the, so many of the complications diminish at 34 weeks. And so I did the whole round to steroids to make sure her lungs were healthy and all that. But right. yeah, so that was scary. And then finally, you know, they'll do um, one final, like they do all these tests all day long and you're hooked up to a 24 hour monitor and they pinpoint, okay, you know, the flow is this way, it's stopped. Yeah. And then that's when they say we got to get her out. So it was, it was pins and needles, you know, not knowing day to day, minute to minute, like whether or not I was having a baby or not. <laughs> and then, then they told me like the whole time I was prepared to have a C-section and last minute one of the specialists calls and they put him on speakerphone and they were saying, they say, well, we think you should try for a vaginal delivery because she's so strong. And me and Mike looked at each other and we're like, we did not read that chapter of the book. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody's schooled us on this. We do not know how to do this. So it was, it was, so I, I had a, natural vaginal delivery and the anesthesiologist wow. did not show up in time she came so fast so I wanted a heavily medicated c-section because I was a nervous wreck right so I thought if I was just knocked out and drugged up I wouldn't feel anything and I'll just get handed this baby eventually that's not how it played out <laughs> so you were so, you were not medicated and yeah right you vaginal. that's so oh yeah God. so the whole time I said because they said well he's busy down the hall and I said for a hospital this size there's got to be one more another physiologist and he comes <laughs> screaming in he's like I'm sorry I'm late and I'm like you better have a cocktail in your hand because because yeah, he's apologizing oh it's not going to work in time and yeah so um it was it was funny but she was so small she put she she just came right out really fast yeah. so it wasn't one of these long you hear all oh, these 24 48 hours three day laboring right. forever anything so yeah no she was out in like 45 minutes and Mike didn't even miss lunch so <laughs> well, for pretty, everybody pretty incredible now when they come out that young do they do they they're like all IV foods like they're not they don't latch on or anything until months later right yeah so the the big thing is so really low blood sugar and then they just can't keep their temperature so that's why they you oh. can't really hold them and stuff so they um they can't and you're right they can't really latch on but what they do I had no idea about all this um, necessarily, but they get breast milk from the start, and because yeah. the milk might not come in right away, they use donor breast milk for NICU babies most of the time mm-hmm. because it's so critical. So they're on, yeah, and so she didn't have a feeding tube until like day two. So she was taking food okay, um, and then the second day she had to have a feeding tube, which I think is pretty normal um, yeah. once they start needing more nutrition. But yeah, so, and, but then um, you just pump and you feed them your milk out of these little tiny droppers like a baby bird. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it took her a good like three to four months until she was really big enough and strong enough to like latch to um, right. be able to breastfeed and stuff comfortably. So yeah, that's a whole that that whole oh man that I was not prepared for this whole like you know you spend your whole day pumping milk and then feeding the baby and then trying to teach them how to latch and they eat every ninety minutes when they're that little and right. you just start the whole cycle again. It was just completely crazy. <laughs> you know I. I I love my friends because everybody's so brutally honest. That's why I keep them around. But 
whenever somebody has a baby, it's like the biggest thing that you want to hear is, they latched on. It's like, oh, thank goodness. You, you, yeah. It's yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. And then when they're that little, you have like this plastic thing you put over, it's called like a nipple shield. So they're trying to suck onto a piece of plastic. They're so tiny, you can barely hold on to them. Then you got like a machine on the other boob trying to like suck out the. <laughs> it's just seriously, you just, it's the funniest, like craziest, most sleep deprived situation. Um, <laughs> Imaginable. It was it was pretty funny in retrospect, but not funny at the time. So sure. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So going back to the diabetes and all the other things that are going on with your diabetes regimen, did your endocrinologist not see, or your regular GP, or anything? A cha- no, I'm not going to say a change, but if you, I'm assuming your A1C was high, that you're thin, and you know putting the pieces together. So this, and I think I told you a little bit about this too, is, you know, I was diagnosed in a really great spot, really great care, but within, I, I think I told you like three or four weeks, I stopped taking my shots. And so when he recognized that I wasn't injecting anymore, like he looked at my stomach and he's like, oh, you're missing injections. He said, I remember being told, don't come back to till you're ready to take care of yourself. You're non-compliant. And, you know, I think about that now and why didn't I get asked, why aren't you taking shots? And right. maybe you're, I may or may not have been honest, but you, know, you think they would have dug a little deeper. But there was times where I'd go in and out of seeing different providers and I'd, I'd get up the guts to, like, tell somebody. And most of the time the response is just, like, you're crazy, take your insulin. And so I don't know if it's, like, a time factor. They don't have time to sit and, you know, analyze all these psychoanalytic aspects going on right. with, you know, why you aren't taking, they just want to see the numbers improving. And um, and so then the other part that comes with that is just flat out lies. You know, why is your A1C high, you know, but your logbook looks great. <laughs> I don't know, maybe my overnight wasn't <laughs> good, or I don't know, I had the flu for a couple weeks, or, um, yeah, just lots of lying, you know, um, and you get really good at, you know, playing the game of, you know, why can't, you know, why are you in the hospital again? Oh, I, you know, I got the flu or this happened or this happened. Right. And it's just, you know, lies upon lies and upon lies. And it it takes a whole lot of, you know, I'm sort of just like, you know, in diabetes burnout, finally going to your doctor and saying, look, I'm struggling. You know, I yeah. need some help. But, and then when I did finally reach out, um, I know very pointedly to, um, a group of physicians here and was getting some help, they ended up dismissing me from the practice because, and I see they were like so good to me for like seven years that they said I was a liability and I couldn't, you know, be a part of their team anymore because, you know, they're so worried about, it was after a hospitalization, I got a letter in the mail saying, you know, we'll no longer allow you to be a patient here. And, you know, I guess that's their doctor's choice, but it just kills me that instead of finding more and more support for a patient, it's we better dismiss you because you're a liability. So that is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so there, and I'm going to chime in right now and say, um, and I should, I know I should have left you with some of my social media or whatever contacts, that I am happy if anybody ever stumbles upon this and listens to the diabetes piece and thinks, oh my gosh, I'm going through this. I'd love some help. There are, there are avenues out there that there's, um, well, listen, uh, I want you to say them, but we'll also have them in the show notes. Yeah, so there's um, there's We Are Diabetes and there's Diabetes Helpline, which are two pretty prominent, you know, resources for help, and we can we can share those. But also, feel free to contact me at any time um, if you have if you are somebody or know somebody or have a loved one that's struggling, and I would be happy to point you to those resources because you know we know, we recognize that that's a huge need is that just going to maybe your endocrinologist or your 
general family practice doctors, they're not going to maybe have the tools or resources or knowledge to be to equip you with the resources and support that you need. So there, but there are places out there. Um, in, in fact, there's like a good 10 to 12, maybe even 15 centers across the country, eating disorder centers that specialize in diabetes now. So wow. um, there's help available. It's just you know, unfortunately, not every, not all providers will recognize that that's or even recognize it in especially like young people that are going in and, you know, not yeah. their A1Cs are high and they're not putting all the pieces together that, oh, this could be what's going on. So, you know, when you were talking about not all providers will know about certain things, and I get that, they have to cover a lot of stuff. But I think that we as patients should interview our potential endocrinologist and say, so what do you know about diabolemia? What do mm-hmm. you know about, because I just heard about something with breast breast tissue. Like, because if I you know, I'll have all these little weird things going on and you can't tell me about them or refer me to somebody and know that they're diabetes related. Like, I don't know that you should be my endocrinologist. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, what questions would you ask an endo if you had to interview them? What questions would I? Oh, I think one of the first things was, would be maybe um, how, like, what do they think is helping a patient manage a successful regimen or what is success? You know, yeah. I, I'm not meaning the word success, but like, how do you, how would you identify like a healthy, happy, you know, patient that's right. thriving with diabetes? Like, how do you know that that's going on? And if that's not going on, then what are you going to do to address, um, address otherwise? You know, if somebody right. is struggling, or I think that's a big thing is, do you feel like you're supporting these people and living their best life with diabetes? Or, um, you know, if somebody, isn't, what are some of the tools and resources you have either in your clinic or in your practice right. or outside in the area that you, you that you can call in? Yeah. Um, and do you work with an, a, a team of people to help? Because, you know, that's really frustrating, too. You go into your endo, and if you say, oh, my stomach's really been bothering me or something, you know, it's always outsourced. Everything's so outsourced. And you feel like just a ping-pong ball bopping all over town or right. different states even trying to get care for each little thing. So, um, maybe just how comprehensive they are in their practice. And I, right. I think the biggest one is, you know, as when you see your patients, how do you know that somebody is happy and healthy, living a really good life with diabetes or yeah. not? And then what are you doing if not? So, And, you know, I just, I mean, I'd be curious to see how many endocrinologists actually care to right. ask that question, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that they're, and this is, that's a generalization, so I apologize to those who are not like this, but, you know, those who are really just caring about your numbers instead of, Mm-hmm. Everything else is, uh, you know, part of the package. Right. Yeah. There's nothing more frustrating is, you know, printing out that data and, or bringing in your log book. Who anymore? <laughs> right? Seriously. I had, when I started seeing the specialist team when I was pregnant, the first, the clinic I went into, they were like, did you bring your log book? And I was like, oh, my gosh. And they're like, what was your fasting blood sugar this morning? And I said, well, I wear a CGM. What time of day do you want? Like, I can give you a number. Let's just look <laughs> right. at my data. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, what time did you test and what's your fasting? And, who? like, I think my, yeah. A1, like, my A1C was really, really good for me at that time. And they're like, oh, my gosh, 111, that number is so high or something. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you just, it, I could breathe and it's going to be either 90 or 117. You know, it's just <laughs> that quick change. Is, it, it's just, yeah, it's funny. But, um I don't even know what we're talking about, but it's made me laugh about logbook. <laughs> well, the logbook, and I got to say, because, you know, I've only been on the Dexcom like 18 months or whatever, but what I love about it, and I know it's a blessing and a curse on so many levels, but, like, I get my Dexcom Clarity um, mm-hmm. weekly report, and it, sometimes it's frustrating because I'm only in range, blah, 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 but let's just say this last one I was in range 78% of the time. 
and I'm like, Amber, you're killing it, man. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, before you were just like, oh, I'm, I was high or, oh, I was really low because right. you didn't have that overall outlook on what this past week has looked like. And it's just, for me, it is such peace of mind. Yeah, and I think that's really where this whole new discussion of, you know, let's look at people's time and range versus what they yes. do. Because you can have a great, you can have a 6A1C, but be 450 all day long and still, you know, average out and not all of a sudden pop in a 6A1C. And the doctors say, great, you know, this looks fantastic. Right, and right. meanwhile, you're at home either on the couch with a juice box in your hand or <laughs> on the couch, you know, at 450. And so that's yeah. not a good life. That does not feel no. good. We all know that that's like shit. <laughs> Yeah, I swore again. I was not going to swear. <laughs> but, okay. you know, that's that's not a, living a healthy life. And so just looking at, okay, you know, are we are we on an even keel here kind of all day long? We're going to have some highs and lows, but are those minimized? And, you know, the time we feel good maximized. And I think that's, that's really, really important. So, You know, I was talking to a friend earlier today who has type 1. He's been a past guest. And he's on a food a diet and his wife I think is a nutrition or dietitian whatever and so he's trying this kind of a detox diet and we're talking about having his blood sugar is way more in range and and then we're talking about just those random events and this whole week has been pretty good like I'll wake up with my blood sugar around anywhere from 104 I'd say to 140 and you know I know when I eat dinner at night I don't eat anything else afterwards I drink plenty of water throughout the night and yesterday morning I woke up with it at 289 Oh, and I'm like, I haven't had a drop of carbohydrates in 13 hours. Like, uh huh. And I was just frustrating as hell. Yeah, and it that, took I, me a long time is. to get it down. I'm like, what the? I just yeah. Mm-hmm. You just I never know. know. No, I know it is crazy, and that that's the worst when you like finally fall asleep, and <laughs> then you wake up and you're like. Oh, but yeah, you're getting some. And then you wake up and you're like, whoa, that was way too good to sleep. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm thankful for the alarms. There's no, no doubt. Yeah, stuff. it is. It's a total, it's a total game changer. And yeah, when you really know, like when you really become in tune with, you know, how to use that data and how to use the alarms as right. a helpful piece. Cause you know, like when I first thought it, like everybody else years ago or whatever, I would set my alarm at high, where high was like, you know, three or 400, and mm-hmm. then it took me years to realize, well, what's the good of an alarm going off when I'm 400, because even if I try to take corrective measures, I'm going to still be really high, and so now, yeah. you know, when you can gradually reduce your high threshold, and then it alarms you when you're headed high, you can take action and kind of nip right. in the bud, and so those alarms become helpful. I mean, they're still annoying every now and then, but especially when the baby, the baby falls asleep finally. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you, what do you what are your ranges low and high? What are you talking um, about? I, well, and I'm still definitely a, a scar, not scarred but skewed from pregnancy. But I keep my high at 120, and wow. I think my low is at like 65 or something. But that's just because I know the time that it takes, and I know my body. And once yeah. I hit 120, I know it's going to be like a freight train taking off because that's when my food is digesting, and it's so with gastroparesis, it's just. So okay, whenever yeah. you just, I have no idea. And so for me, as soon as it, and especially if it's 120 with any kind of arrow, I know I need to dose right then. Right. Um, if it's flat and it's going like 120 and drops to like one, you know, then I'll kind of wait a little bit. But yeah. Um, yeah, for me, as soon as I hit that, I know. And especially if I had just eaten a few hours ago, I know it, where it's headed. So it's just, yeah, it's just kind of learning. But the first, I ha- I've had Dexcom since it came out like, that, what, nine. 
2006. And mm-hmm. for the first, like, year and a half, mine sat in a drawer because I'm like, this is junk. Like, <laughs> I hate yeah. this thing. Like, I don't need to know this stuff. Like, I know I'm high. Why is it beeping at me? This isn't helping. So it took a long time, but, boy, am I thankful for it now. So, gosh. Well, so do you still feel – do you feel your lows? I, I do. I feel my lows. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, when I get to about 65, I can start to feel them. And I don't know if this is like everybody else, but and I think I can just keep working through them. You know, yeah. you're like, yeah. I'm fine. My husband's like, juice box, juice box. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. We're having dinner soon or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of ignore them. But, yeah, I feel them, which I'm really grateful. Do you still feel yours? I do, and it changes. I mean, they've, it's definitely changed since I was a little yeah. kid. But now I relate it more to anxiety. Like it's a... You know, and I was trying to get dressed for a meeting the other day, and it was a big deal, and I had taken plenty of time, and, you know, just, and then I was like, I can't figure out what, what to put on, and I'd already had my outfit planned, and, and then I was like, Amber, damn it, check your blood sugar, and it was like, double arrows down, uh, and so, it, you know, and it was like, okay, good, let's pump the brakes for a second, this is not about you, your mind is not, you're not crazy, drink some more juice, and let's just take a second to relax, and, for you. You know, I really, it's taken me 30 plus years to get to that point where these things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing you can do other than to just try to correct and not overcorrect and, and take a minute to take a deep breath. It's going to take time instead of yep. the panic mode that I normally would be in. So, yeah, that's the worst, that zombie state when nothing is making sense all the time. Ugh. And you're, you're going about your day doing whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden, you don't know what you're trying to find at the grocery store or, uh, like, uh-huh. you're just always, you're just aimless. You have no idea what you're doing, and it's so frustrating because you don't really know why, but you should know why, and you do know. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> well, yeah. and I was, so I was pulled over recently um, driving into my hometown. I'm not going to name it because I'm not happy with him. And I was pulled over because my tag, I just bought a new car, and the tag has passed 30 days, and, and it's St. Patrick's Day, mind you. So, I mean, and it, I will say I was headed to that town to have coffee with one of my dearest friends. So it was early morning. I'm sure they went high alert. And so this man checks my driver's license, comes back, blah, blah, blah. We talk about it. And um, he was like, okay, here's a warning. Hands me the ticket or whatever. And then I said, he didn't ask me if I had candy in the car. And he was like, and I go, because it clearly states on my license that I have type 1 diabetes. And the last time I was pulled over, they made sure, and I would have been fined. And he was like, well, you know, I just figured, I don't know what he said, and it was kind of a smart-assy comment. And he goes, I just had to deal with somebody with type 1 and had to arrest them or something because of a major accident. And I was like, oh, let me guess, because they had low blood sugar. And he goes, yep. Uh, like, what? Like, I, I, I mean, I was being a smart-ass. I shouldn't have said anything, but... but- yeah, I, I've never heard of that, that you could be fined if you don't have, and I think it must vary from state to state, because I know, like, oh, in I'm Minnesota, sure. I had to indicate, you know, diabetes on my license, but then there's lots of people from different states that say they don't have, that's not on the form, so, but I've never heard that you can get fined if you don't have a treatment in the car, that's crazy. You're supposed to have something within um, arm, hands reach, and in Oklahoma, really? yeah, I remember going to the Department of Transportation to take my driving test. You know, I'm 16. I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. And we get there to start filling out the stuff. And they it came up that I had diabetes. And they wouldn't allow me to take my test without a letter from my endocrinologist stating that I was in good enough health to drive. Oh, so gosh. I couldn't take my test and should have hit the fan because I was livid. Ugh. 
I, that yeah. Minnesota, you had to, here you don't have to, I'm in Idaho now, but in Minnesota, you had to, and you had to re, have the doctor redo it. It was like annoyingly often, like every six months or something. And mm-hmm. once I didn't, and I got pulled over and I, they, I was escorted out of my car into the police car. Um, and they drove me home. They wouldn't let me get back in my car. And then I had to go to court, the whole deal. There was people, you know, sitting in those chairs and the orange jumpsuits and stuff. And I felt what? like a criminal. Yeah. Because my license, I think your license becomes, you know, revoked or suspended or whatever it is oh on there. Yeah, it was really scary. I was, I think I was, you know, 20 or just fairly young too and not probably really caring about diabetes too much, but I didn't want to do any paperwork and right. uh, it was scary. <laughs> diagnosis is like one more thing to add to the list. So not only do I have to keep myself alive and count every carb, now I've got to remember to, talk, you know, call the DMV for, an, uh, you know, my end of for a letter. Right. I know. Ah! Yeah, it was crazy. So, well, is there anything else you want to share, Mother? Um, oh gosh, I don't. Uh, we I could probably sit and chat with you for hours. Oh, I, we, motherhood. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, um, I'll see lots of questions of younger people or whatever. You know, oh, do you think you can have a baby with type one or whatever? And um, and I think I jokingly said to you that I, I feel like type 1 diabetes or diabetes is almost like like a training regimen for having a yeah. baby because we're we're kind of a, we're sleep deprived already we <laughs> snacks along already we have to take like breaks like sometimes bag, you know bags yeah. stuff we have i know it's so it's not like people i remember were like oh what kind of diaper bag are you getting and this and that and i'm like why do i need i I already carry around this giant thing. I mean, throwing in a little <laughs> extra, like, milk and a couple diapers, like, this isn't going to take up much more space in my bag. So I just kind of jokingly feel like, you know, like, now that I'm up all night anyways, I have a little buddy to hang out with in the middle of the night. So um, it's definitely com- totally possible. And, um, you know, and the other thing, too, is I'll see a lot of people saying, oh, I want to try and get my, you know, health together and A1C, and especially in the diabulimia group and they're thinking about having yeah. babies, but I think you really need to have your, be healthy for you first before yeah. going into it because then if you have the baby, you know, I think the risk of falling back into the trap of being unhealthy is so much, could be so much more prevalent because you're, you know, you haven't done it for yourself yet. Yeah. And so, you know, then you have the baby and you think, okay, the baby's here, the baby's fine. And so now I can go back to my old ways. And that's something I think my endocrinologist that my husband, that everybody was really scared about that I was going to fall back into like the old ways. So. Right. Um, what's, what's your daughter's name? Madeline. Madeline. So do yep. you have any fear of, her having type one diabetes, and do you know the, the percentages there? Yeah, so it's kind of a it's kind of a long answer, but the percentages are um, for males it's about one in seventeen if the father is type one. For females it is one in twenty five if the mom is under um, twenty five when she has the baby, one in a hundred if the mom is over twenty five when she has the baby, and That's then so the risk. Yeah, and then the risk is doubled if either mom or dad was diagnosed before the age of 11 and then it's one in four between one in four and one in ten if both parents are type one so it's kind of a lengthy answer but a quick you know you, that's all just pulled from the um, american diabetes association sites and there's some other sites but um so the risk is there and do i think about it yeah i think about it you know 
probably more than I should. And anytime she has like a little cut or bump and I see a little drop of blood, I go get my meter and I test her. And <laughs> I, I've poked her heel twice and I probably shouldn't just being an over warrior. But you do, you know, anytime there's some extra wet diapers or, you know, I drop her off at grandma's and they're like, oh, she was so thirsty today. I'm like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I think about it. And, you know, a couple of people have just said to me, well, if it happens, you know, there's nobody better prepared to take care of her than you so it's true um i hold that close to my heart but yeah you do um i, I don't think there's probably anybody that probably you wouldn't think about it but yeah i don't know so my husband's like oh she'll be fine you know he's always forever the optimist so yay <laughs> but yeah so he keeps me grounded to that respect but um yeah like just yesterday she had a little scrape on her nose and it the scab came off and it was bleeding so i ran and got my got my little one drop meter and I she loves that thing I don't know if you've seen that one drop meter but it's so shiny mm-hmm. favorite yeah. baby toy ever oh my gosh she can like shake that little test strip bottle it's like all shiny oh, like that's, that makes sense. I, yeah don't ever buy anything for babies ever like all you got to do is <laughs> give them like a sealed test strip bottle and you're golden but um yeah baby so tip me here yeah right <laughs> Yeah, you're what you're equipped with. You know, they can shake all kinds of stuff. And mommy's got all kinds of snacks and shiny juice boxes. So, but, <laughs> well, but yeah. What, so when you test your blood sugar, I don't know if you know children that young. What what is the range still the same? Like eighty to one twenty, or what's the goal? Um, I think it. I think it is a yeah. It's about the same. I think it even says up to like one fifty is normal. And I always like okay. she's she's been like one twenty ish, one thirty once, and so even that made me a little nervous. I'm like, oh, can't you just do like eighty five and not make me worried at all? But <laughs> You know, and then once they're one, which she just turned one on over the weekend, you can get them signed up to tra- for trial net. And, yeah. and so that's still, I need to do a little bit uh, more talking with other parents and stuff because I'm still undecided about finding those results out. And it's not like a definitive yes or no, they don't have it. They just check for, you know, the an- different yeah. antibodies. And yeah. I think you said your sister did or there's somebody did it with she their didn't, kids. No, and, she didn't. But so oh, I have, she did. I had okay. one other group that has done it. Um, yeah. That's a tough, I mean, we, that's a whole other podcast in itself. Um, right. So much of knowing and not knowing. So Yeah. And and I think maybe if it was totally definitive, it might be different. But even if they do present with antibodies, I don't think it's necessarily guaranteed they're going to develop it. And if they have none, it's not guaranteed that they won't. So I still think there might <laughs> be that layer of anxiety or worry, but... I don't know. I, it, for yeah. me, I'll, I need to do a little bit more digging. When I first learned about it, she was only like a month old, and so I, a year seemed so far out. It seemed like eons away, and now here we are. So, well, I'll be sure to check in with you to see, you know, if you if you care to share like what you decided on that, because I think that will be really good um, input or feedback for the parents. You know, yeah. kind yeah. of on the uh, excuse me on the fence on that as well. Yeah, because so. that's something as a parent I'm really interested in connecting with other parents about and seeing why and how and if it helps, you know, making that decision. So, yeah. um, cool. Well, I think, I mean, that's all I've got unless you've got any other fun tips or diabetes facts you want to throw out. <laughs> diabetes <laughs> facts, hmm. <laughs> no, I, I think my four swear words probably summed it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's why we, I like you because we speak the same language. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one of the things, too, with living with this disease. There are good days and there are bad. You just have to know that the next day hopefully will be better, and if not, you get to figure out how that can happen because, you know, even if it's just hanging out with your friends or giving somebody a call, you know, it's easy to be on an island, and this disease, you need to have a a tribe, not just be there by yourself, so... I know, and, and when we were chatting, I hadn't really connected with, you know, I've been kind of in baby mode and hadn't really connected with 
you know, my the diabetes world and stuff, and I was just thinking when I was heading to talk to you, like, you know, diabetes is so, you know, the days can be really lonely, but there's so much strength in knowing that we're not necessarily alone. And oh, that, yeah. That's just so, you know, for so many years, I felt really, really, really alone. And it wasn't until like five or six years ago, I went to that diabetes on a conference and connected mm-hmm. with my people. And that was like life changing for me. I think I even wrote my little thing to you, you know, that's when I first yeah. realized, like, I really want to do something in the diabetes space. You know, like I see all these people who, you know, we all have this common thread, but live our days, you know, in so much isolation that yeah. the only way to, the only way to get through it is, and it's something, you know, it's not even explainable to people on the outside. It's not just like being on Facebook or social media or whatever. It's it's weird to have friends that are online, but where else can you just, like, chat or, you know, answer some questions? We can't just run down to the coffee shop necessarily all the time and meet up with a bunch of type 1 people. I mean, it happens more and more now, but it's not still that common. And so It's not, yeah. The, I guess, yeah, the, the strength and, you know, having, having the ambers around is just <laughs> so <laughs> inspiring. There's, you know, today on social media, and I posted something about one of the pharmaceutical companies. I retweet or reposted it or whatever. And all these people, I have no idea who they are, started chiming in like, this is ridiculous, or now I better understand. And one of my past guests, and he's very well respected, Michael Hoskins, he came in with an educated, and I didn't even know this happened because this was like yesterday and I was not on social media. But he responded to somebody else, and he really gave good information about this new um, discounted insulin. And mm. I chimed in, and, and there was, like, one thing after another in a very positive way, and then it's, like, one of those things that not only do you need the community, but mm-hmm. he, he was in a place to explain some things that I don't fully understand. And mm-hmm. there was, like, this whole other perspective, which was really, really nice to read. Um, yep. That was a yeah. big thing, and, and I think I was probably like you. I didn't see that perspective right away, and I just thought, you know, I saw, oh, discount insulin, why, well, why not discount the good one? Is this like an elitist yes. thing now? Only people with money can get the good stuff and everybody else has to get this stuff. And But I didn't see it as like this progress. And, you know, and so, yep, exactly the same. I saw that, you know, that shift in, and it is, it's so, it's amazing to see, you know, everybody's different pieces of knowledge come together and build this amazing community. And there's so many people who just aren't aware of so many things out there too. You know, we're all kind of actively engaged in this space and there's so many people that will hop in a group or something and be like, hi, I'm new here. I've had diabetes for 40 years. What's Humalog? Or, you know, and it's just like, oh my gosh. And just to see like the shift in them or the change or, hey, I went to my doctor and got this new insulin. It's amazing. Like, it's just so exciting. And it is, it's really knowledge of power. And, you know, I think that kind of one of my life missions is about outreach and I will say with the comment you made the other day about it's not like you can just go to the coffee shop and, and chat it up. I am, you know, Ryan and I used to host happy hours and social gatherings. Three out of four would be for adults only because mm-hmm. we wanted to sit and have a craft beer with somebody and be able to chat mm-hmm. or a cup, a cup of coffee, whatever, um, because you wanted to find your local community. So next mm-hmm. month, um, which would be, uh, it'll be on April 11th, I'm bringing the happy hour and the podcast on the road and we're heading Rogers, Arkansas. Oh, fun. Yeah, I'm excited. I got an email after the last podcast and was like, hey, you said contact us if it con- you know, to contact you if we wanted you to come. Yes. Can you make it? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess I can. So April 11th, and so if you're hearing this, it will come out before. Um, keep an eye on the social media because I'll give other announcements as to other things I'll be doing while I'm in Rogers, Arkansas for a couple of days. Cool. You're so awesome. That's just great. Good for you. 
Well, and the goal is, I mean, it's not, I'm happy to host because I love entertaining, but if, you know, people are reaching out to me because they need this community, and thankfully I found it here in Oklahoma City, and I know we've found it through different conferences and stuff like that, but, you know, I my goal is to set one of these up in certain cities, and then somebody else take the lead, because you mm-hmm. should meet once a month for coffee or yeah. support somebody through something, so, yeah, yep. You or anybody else ever have any thoughts on better outreach efforts or what you know what you need to see or do to participate? Please hit me up. I'm open to it. So yeah, yeah I'm always thinking because you know yeah definitely we're the we're the people that are you know connected. I think it's a real minority and there's just so many people out there who are still going alone. And how do we find them and bring them into our little you know bring them into the web of support and connectedness? And so and oh maybe you asked about questions for your endos. That might be one. Where, where's my outward support? Because they see people all day long with diabetes. So why? I mean, I know there's like all the compliance stuff and you know rules and regs, but you think there'd be something like, oh, and by the way, there's this group that I know <laughs> some of that happens, but you know maybe just more of having having the providers involved in that piece too. But you know, I, I got to say one last thing because all these things have just literally happened in the past 48 hours. When you think about your mission in life or your calling or whatever, and I've said this is mine for quite some time, I ha- basically brought in a recruiter to find a real time, real job because I need a paycheck, <laughs> and this is not, I, yeah, do that. Um, and she was looking at our resume, we were talking about stuff, and she asked me about the Diabetes Daily Grind in the podcast. And I said, well, you know, I've lived with the disease for a long time, and here's why I did it. And she looked me dead in the face. Mind you, she's supposed to be trained to help me find a job. She goes, this is your life, this is your work. This is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. And she got really deep and she goes, my father died of diabetes. And I said type 1 or type 2 and she, she didn't know, which is okay. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a long discussion about it. And then she told me about one of her family members in Venezuela who, you know, can't get her medication. And, and I was like, wow, this is coming from someone who doesn't live with the disease. And, you know, that, and she goes, you need to find sponsors. And I was like, I'm trying, trust me, I'm trying. But it was really nice to hear from some outsider that, that she saw this is important. Yeah. Every once in a while you just need to hear that. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, anytime you meet with somebody who doesn't necessarily live with the disease, but it's rare that you will run into somebody and you start talking about diabetes where they don't know somebody who yeah. has diabetes, you know, if it's not in their family or their neighbor or somebody. And I think every all of those people, they you know, they often find value in the conversations that you can have about the disease and they'll say things like that, like, oh, you're so knowledgeable, or, you know, this is more helpful than seeing my doctor. Or, right. And you right. just think, well, how can we make this so it's like a like systematic thing or systemic yeah. thing where, you know, this is part of the diagnosis. Like, you leave the dentist with a little baggie of, like, dental floss and toothpaste and a toothbrush. Like, why are we not leaving the office with, you know, equipped with certain medications and tools and also support <laughs> because it's, you know, you close it, you walk out the front door of that office and you're, it's lonely and you're faced with lunch and, you know, the pharmacy <laughs> all on your own again. So, yeah. Again, yeah. I'm so thankful to be diagnosed at an early age because at 19, I just can imagine what, because you really do know what's going on at that point, you know? Yeah, you just want to be cool. You don't want to bring a pump with you. You just go out to party and leave that thing at home. You don't need that for the club, right? It doesn't match my dress. Oh, my God. Yeah, and that's so too, and that pulls up my heart too, too, is that age, um, that age of diagnosis is, you know, between 18 and 30. You know, there's a certain system, you know, when you're younger, 
it, you know, there's no easy age at all ever to be diagnosed, yeah. whether it's six months or, you know, 101. But, you know, you have kind of your family knows that they're there, like, and they probably need to protect and support you and help with right. all that stuff. But then all of a sudden you're 18 and you maybe you're off at college or off in the workforce and you are on your own. And there's such a, I call it like the, like the diabetes gap is there's just this yeah. weird, you know, you're not quite an adult yet and you're fluctuating in this zone, don't know how to navigate insurance necessarily, not that any of us ever really do, but, you know, <laughs> you know, you might not have a full-time job or even a part-time job that provides insurance or, you know, all those things that you're worrying about starting your life, not managing a disease. And so that's right. something really, and, you know, there are organizations out there that are starting to recognize that that's a really needed group to address too is that Absolutely. 18 to 30, like, what are we going to do for these people that aren't adults and are not kids? And they're faced with this life-changing, you know, burden expensive. to carry around on your yeah. shoulder. Yeah, and expense. Yeah, now you don't have beer money. You have insulin <laughs> <Yeah>. money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, let me say this. I'm glad that insulin was really cheap whenever I was in college because with the current prices, I, I would have had no social life, um, probably no food. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's so ridiculous. It's crazy. So, well, I guess we, um, I'm, I'm babbling away, but I guess we should wrap it up. I guess. I mean, I don't want to, but. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. This is one of our longer podcasts. I hope that everyone is still listening. And, Cynthia, thank you so much for taking time because I think that this podcast will hit home with a lot of people. And as I said before, everyone, the all of the things that we talked about today, down to Cynthia's contact information will be available in the show notes. So, as she said, reach out to her anytime. She obviously knows what she's talking about and can guide you into finding the right resources, right? Absolutely. Whether it's, you know, about diabetes or different anything or diabulimia or babies and diabetes or babies or anything because I'm staying at home right now, so I crave adult conversations. So you might catch, it might be really bad if you do contact me because I might, I might just reply really, really, like, lazily and want to talk on the phone and meet you for coffee. So um, full disclosure, right? But, no, I'm happy anytime. I, seriously, my one of my most favorite things in life to do is talk and connect to other people that um, have diabetes or those that love them. So anytime, I'm happy to help. And, Amber, thank you so much. I haven't talked diabetes for so long. I, I was so nervous. I'm like, Am I even going to remember what a basal is or a bolus? You know, I've been so worried about, you know, breast milk and babies and diapers. So, no, it was I'm great. Glad. Yeah, no, it was, it's definitely great. So, but thank you, thank you so much. And you are you are always ever inspiring. So um, keep doing yeah. what you're doing. And this definitely is your calling. So I appreciate that. And I really do hope and I feel very confident we will be sitting across from each other one day in the very near future Sipping coffee or a cocktail, maybe both. Perfect. I I vote for both. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Amber. It was great. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Woohoo! Another real-life diabetes podcast in the books. And hopefully Cynthia, Cynthia did not suffer from a vulnerability hangover. And yeah, that's a real thing, according to my therapist, after recording this episode because she really did touch on some diabetes demons. I recall Cynthia's response when I asked if she would be interested in joining the show as something like, I'm not famous, I'm just the average person. And I assured her she was the perfect guest because 99.9% of us are not famous. We're just folks living the best life we can 
with this ridiculous disease. She was relatable and raw, and I hope she inspires you to not let diabetes or whatever other struggles you have consume you. I am truly thankful for her honesty and friendship and willingness to be on the show. As I wrap up this episode, I want listeners to know that I am open to researching any topic or potential guest, so don't be shy. Shoot me an email, amber at diabetesdailygrind.com, with anything that's on your mind. I'm always here to listen, and I promise I do read them even when I don't respond as quickly as I would like. So keep living the good life, and cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Diabetes is a daily grind and the daily grind and it grinds and grinds and grinds and grinds. You got to watch what you're eating. You gotta watch it every day. What do you call it? What do you call it? Is it diabetes or diabetes? Had to check and see if your level is up or down. What'd you have for dinner? What'd you have for lunch? Did you have too many or not enough? Get all the levels to shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, cause I'm alive. Yes, I'm alive. One minor Little thing called diabetes